All right, welcome to Verity Ed, where parents are primary. I am so excited to be joined today by Roy Peachy, and he is a husband, father, and son, first and foremost, but also an author, a home educator, and a secondary school teacher. So he's seen it all in the education world. Um, he is the author of many books or several books, but most of all, I just want to point out his first uh, 50 books for life. Um, which is a concise guide to Catholic literature. He breaks open some of the great texts that every well-read Catholic should know for you. He also wrote, Did Jesus Go to School? And Other Questions About Parents, Children, and Education, followed by Out of the Classroom and Into the World, How to Transform Catholic Education. So all of this sounds like plumbing the depths to me. His latest book, The Race, just came out this year, 2021, and we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of our conversation today. So, Roy, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's really good to be here. Yes. <laughs> and where is here for you, Roy? Well, here for me is, is the south of England, um, mm -hmm. just south of London. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wonderful. So I'm in, I'm in Connecticut, you're over across the pond in the mother country. Um, and I want to talk to you about education and in particular, um, the ideas of Stratford Caldecott of Oxford University, who's been one of the primary influences for both of us, I think, in our thinking about um, the goal of a humane education. So first, um, what is the goal of education, when we think about schooling and reading, what is the goal of all that? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and Stratford Caldecott was a real inspiration. I suppose there are different ways of looking at the goal, but we might put it simply as just simply wisdom. Um, and wisdom itself is perhaps a, a term that isn't bandied around in schools too much these days. If at um, all. And <laughs> if at all yeah. and uh, it has a there's a, a real breadth to wisdom that I think is perhaps underappreciated so when the Greeks talked about Sophia or wisdom they meant perhaps some of the things that we might associate it with it today in terms of philosophy but they also were thinking very much practically there was a very much a sense of mm -hmm. practical know-how uh, wrapped up in that concept um, and there's there's a wonderful set of uh, videos from Aquinas 101 that you might have come across and in yeah. a recent one um, I think possibly the first one of the new series wisdom was def defined as an understanding of the whole of reality mm. I thought that was wonderful there's that sense in which there's an understanding of the whole of reality whereas so often what happens in education is that we fragment it right and, and that was one of Stratford, Stratford Caldecott's Kind of big points really that mm -hmm. the point of education is to bring together what is so easily separated right and yeah and i think thinking about wisdom i love that um that idea of wisdom as understanding the whole of reality because it also um it sort of explodes our idea of education as being something that we're done with when we're 18 or 22 to because you need your all of eternity to to explore reality and to to bring it all together with our little minds. So education then becomes a lifelong and an eternal project rather than just something that you're through and done with before you get into the real world. Yeah, absolutely. And it also means it's not simply a case of collecting certificates. It's not about 
ticking the next box so I can go on to what really matters. Absolutely, mm -hmm. as you say, this is a this is a project for, for a whole lifetime and beyond. Right, that's great. So you you have been both a home educator of your own children, um, and you are in the schools uh, over in Britain. So how is this goal of wisdom best realized in these two different situations, which unfortunately are very different, it seems? Yes. Well, I suppose my personal experience was that I went to school, everybody I knew went to school. Mm -hmm. My expectation when I became a father was that my children would go to school. That was just normality. It was, it was really the only option as far as I knew. Um, we, we don't have, as you do in the States, that, that wonderful um, tradition of, of home education, or at mm -hmm. least it feels wonderful <laughs> to us from a distance. <laughs> we feel very envious of you. Um, so it was, it, was, it's, it was very much felt like a fringe movement to us. Mm -hmm. So I, but when we started um, for various reasons to, to home educate our children, it was something of a revelation mm -hmm. because, well, for all sorts of reasons, but one reason is it got us to look afresh at what we mean by education. Mm -hmm. um, and I think so often in the school system, education becomes a, a kind of industrial process. Hmm. Uh, the bells ring to move you on to the next lesson. Um, yeah. You have to, you know, you have to learn certain things in order to pass to the next level. The next There's test. assurance and then you're out. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I suppose the, the real, the, the real benefit of home education is that you can start to feel, think about the genuine purpose of education mm -hmm. and wisdom. And you can, see, okay, how's that going to work for my children? Mm -hmm. uh, so there's that flexibility as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I don't think all is lost for the school system at all. I'm, you know, I'm working in the, in yeah. the school system. <laughs> You're there. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that um, there are certain pressures that you get in, mm -hmm. in a school system which you uh, you don't get when you're home educating and obviously mm -hmm. you get different pressures when you're home educating. It's, it's you know, it's not straightforward by any mm -hmm. means. Right. Um, I think there are, they are, as you suggest, I think they are two very different approaches to, to education in many cases. Mm -hmm. What were some of the particular um, strengths or, or memories that you have of, of home educating your children that where you sort of had a breakthrough and thought, oh, we are moving towards wisdom here. <laughs> We're tying it together. Well, I think we gradually, when we started home educating, we were essentially trying to do school at home. Mm -hmm. And I think as soon as we realized that we didn't have to do that, yeah, then that was a breakthrough moment. Yes, and I freedom. Think, absolute freedom. That's right. Hmm. And I think, the, I think another breakthrough moment for us was when we realized that it wasn't about us simply offloading information on our children. It was mm -hmm. about us all learning together. And I think my experience and, and probably quite a lot of people's experience has been that we've learned a huge amount. My wife and I have learned a huge amount through home educating. And, yeah. and we've, we all learn together. I think that's what I really love about the home education experience that we, you know, obviously I know more than my children because I'm older than them, but <laughs> nonetheless, they teach me things and right. we learn things together. And that's, that's just wonderful. It is. It's a wonderful family culture that, um, that it's rare, I think, because simply because of the amount of time in some as in some ways that 
you know, when you're in school, you have your children in school and you're in a job and you're essentially away from one another for so many hours um, that it's, it, it, we become fragmented as a family in some ways just because of the lifestyle. But the gift of home education is that quantity of time together um, and that being together in, in daily life um, and being open to the questions that come up in a child's daily life naturally like oh what's that bug doing over there something as simple as that can turn into let's get out the field guide and figure out what bug that is and yeah so that togetherness is a is a real gift um what are some of the so I, i'm so happy to hear that you don't feel that the system of schools is completely broken so where do you see the the gold in a school system for pursuing wisdom then what are the strengths of being a part of a school system. Well, we had a we had a wonderful visit from Pope Benedict XVI. You did. I remember. Yes. <laughs> and he he gave a wonderful talk um, mm -hmm. to to school children, um, where he just really neatly encapsulated so much as you know as his great his his great talent was. Um, so he he spoke about the fact that a good school prepares you for. Uh, all the practicalities it mm -hmm. prepares for the world of work but over and above that mm -hmm. um, schools should be helping their students become saints yeah and i thought that was just a oh, what a wonderful way of looking at education if we're trying to help our students prepare to become mm -hmm. saints or help them to become saints right um, so but but of course he was very careful and he didn't simply say that that's the only focus or that's the that's the you know it's not religious education um, you know, dawn to dusk. He also <laughs> said there is this genuine task of a of a school, which is to mm -hmm. to help um, students learn you know, the particular subjects and prepare for the particular vocations. Right. The the difficulty, of course, is is how we how we bring those together, or how preparing our students for for eternity kind of mm -hmm. works through, you know, the everyday teaching of grammar or physics or whatever right. it happens to be. <laughs> Yeah, and that's very much the challenge, right? I was, um, I was so Stratford Caldecott talks about the the sacramental nature of education, and um, that it's addressing the whole person, and like you said, all of all of truth and integrating the the foundation of truth, which is God, right? Who is God, um, into the the little pieces of truth that we grasp onto as as human beings right the grammar and the chemistry and the geometry and 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 integrating those um, and in a school community um, I was just reading another essay uh, by Andrew Seeley who's at Thomas Aquinas College over here um, and uh, he his in his institute the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education. Um, they just released a wonderful book called Renewing Catholic Education, and they call on this idea of sacramentality as well as sort of the Catholic genius in education that can infuse our schools. And there's sort of to find that middle ground between just tacking religion on as another subject, right? So we're a Catholic school because we teach everything they need to get a good job, and then they have Catholic class at the end of the day. Um, and that on the other extreme, all we do is scripture and mass and rosary and that's all we do and somehow a catholic approach to education is seeing how the faith inhabits how god 
God is the grounding for every subject, as it were, um, and draws them together in himself. Um, and that's something I think that the Catholic tradition uh, has as a strength to, to imbue both homes where home education is happening and schools where Catholic education or education is happening um, with that sacramentality. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a wonderful book. I'd highly recommend it. Renewing Catholic education. Very, Excellent. it's really good. Yeah, thank you for the recommendation. And one of the, um, one of the benefits of lockdown over here was that, um, I actually managed to get to one or two of the webinars that Andrew Seeley uh, produced. So yes. That was, that was great. <laughs> yeah. He's brilliant. He's brilliant to use the, the British term, I believe. <laughs> um, yeah, so how, to kind of break it down a little bit further, um, how, how does a classical approach to education step-by-step step, equip children to think towards truth or to think in this, this, um, this integrated way about reality and discerning truth, but also with the practical aspect? So how, how can education do that sort of on a step-by-step um, in what step-by-step -step away yes well I think I think you're a fan of Dorothy L Sayers um, I am a fan another another Brit um, and uh, I suppose her unique um, contribution to the whole classical education debate was to very much get us to think about those three different stages mm -hmm. in a child's <laughs> development uh, and to match the, the the classical model to that and I suppose that's that's really valuable. To, I, I thought that was quite an eye opener, really, when mm -hmm. I first read um, the Lost Tools of Learning. Yeah, um, it's a wonderful talk, wonderful essay. Uh, and I suppose what we often do is we we tend to think of, of children as a sort of almost an amorphous blob, and we rather than thinking about that, that there are stages, and sometimes children mm -hmm. are just not ready for the next stage. Mm -hmm. um, and there are, there is a, a grounding they require. There's a way of thinking that comes. It's slightly different ages for different children as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, what I really like about her approach is the fact that, well, I suppose the whole classical education um, approach, looking more generally, has changed over the over the years, even <laughs> during the classical era. Yes. Um, so you know the, the early Christians took Cassiodorus and others took and adapted what was already a, you know a strong educational model. But in a sense, reinvented it, uh, revived it, mm -hmm. um, Christian um, revelation. Um, but then it's kind of progressed since then as well. With you know more recently, people like Dorothy L. Sayers. Mm -hmm. So I suppose that what can the classical education give us today? It can give us all sorts of different things. I think it, partly it's about taking us out of the present and reminding us that um, you know we are equally capable of making mistakes today as people <laughs> were in the past and I, yes. think, I think for me that's one of the major problems that students face today they tend to be so caught in the present yes um, and so sure that the way that they and their peers um, and perhaps politicians around them think today is the only way of thinking mm -hmm. they're very dismissive of the past yeah and, and simply opening up the fact that there are great thinkers uh, in the past and that there's something to learn there is is a valuable starting point yeah I forget um what exactly Chesterton said but it was something along those lines that um we need to have a democracy of the dead as it were that the, 
<laughs> we need to listen to voices of many different times. And I, I do, I find it astonishing in secular education right now, the, the strength of this progressivism that anyone who lived prior to 1969 maybe um, is just not worthy of listening to or the, the mistakes that they made are so egregious and so offensive to our sensibilities that anything else they did isn't worthy of consideration. Um, yes, I was, I was talking to uh, Soren uh, Schwab, who's uh, vice president of the classic learning test here in the US, which is trying to replace the SAT and ACT for us. And it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful movement. But he was talking about um, uh, a classics professor here who was being criticized in his Greek and Latin course uh, courses for teaching dead white guys, such as Aristotle and Cicero. And uh, I was like, well, Soren, what are they to teach then? And he said, well, you can still teach Latin, but you need to be translating current authors into Latin and then back into English. That's how, that's how you're supposed to do it now because these men who lived so long ago can only damage us by their barbarism or something along those lines. But it was just, it, it's just so unreal to me that that's a, a way of thinking now. And I think you're right, this idea that we need to introduce our children to the idea that men and women of the past are share our human nature and share our human struggles and, and share the grounding of all truth, their creation by God, and, um, and are therefore our brothers and sisters and worthy of attention for their lasting contribution to our civilization there. But I, I digress, perhaps. <laughs> no, no, that's I you know. I absolutely agree, and I think I think there is a perception out there um, among people who, not necessarily coming from even a Catholic perspective, there's a French historian called Francois Artog who talks about presentism. He's written a couple of really interesting books where he he talks about the fact that, that modern society is very much defines itself mm -hmm. uh, through the present, whereas it wasn't that long ago. Um, when people were actually defining themselves in terms of the future, for example, mm -hmm. or, or possibly the past. Um, but we're very much caught in the, in the present at the moment. And he, he argues quite convincingly you know, about the problems of all of that. Yeah, it's a prison. It's an intellectual prison um, that we need to break out of. And I think for that reason, you know, even families who might be listening who have their children in the school system, it's very valuable for you as parents to read Dorothy Sayers or read Stratford Caldecott to understand these stages of learning so that you can um, augment or put in front of your children pleasure reading to, um, to, a bit, to resist this presentism in their upbringing. If they're not getting it in the schools, then parents need to educate themselves to provide it in the home as a supplement or an enhancement. Um, and I think this is where a book like yours, like the 50, oh my goodness, I've lost my place. Ah, the 50 books for life can be really helpful for parents to sort of begin to break out of that. And I like the way you framed the books uh, chronologically uh, in terms of when they were written. Um, as a, it's a good starting reading list for adults. How, how do you coach parents to discern what books are to prioritize, what books are 
worthy of their children's dignity. <laughs> How do you tell a classic from, you know, just the latest? I, I don't want to disparage Harry Potter, but um, it's probably not going to be around in 600 years. Uh, I could be wrong. But how do you how do you know what to feed your children in your library? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. It's a really important question. And, and yeah. I think it's difficult. And I think one reason it's difficult is because so much is now published. Uh, it's very difficult just to keep up. It's overwhelming. Absolutely. And I think um, I don't know what public libraries are like uh, where you are as well, but the, the focus there tends to be very much on uh, the latest offering. It's presentism. Than, it's presentism, again, yeah. presentism library. Yep. <laughs> so, um, so one approach, uh, a fairly obvious approach, might be to actually to explore in the classics, mm -hmm. and um, and that might be a real revelation for people. I've certainly found, partly because I have daughters, that I, lots of books that I thought I might have read when I was a child, I hadn't actually read. <laughs> and so I've been, I've been discovering all sorts of things with them, you know, Anne oh. Green Gables and um, Laura Ingalls Wilder, The Little House on the Prairie and, and so yeah. on. So I think there is, a, there is a great deal to be said for exploring those classics. Mm -hmm. And we also had a moment of revelation um, a couple of summers ago, two or three summers ago, when we were, we were driving around quite a lot and we put on some, uh, some audio books as we were going. Mm. And my, my youngest daughter, who was then probably about six years old or seven, five years old, was listening to some of these books that were, you know, we'd never give her as a, a book to read. Right. But she was taking them in and yeah. really enjoying them. Mm -hmm. And then we were even hearing, you know, in her conversation, various things were coming back from these books. So I think there is sometimes there's there's merit in, in hearing a book before mm -hmm. you can before you can read it. Right. Um, especially if it's beautifully narrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I found that very much too. Um, now that I have such a broad range of ages in my house, I have two years old all the way up to almost 16. Uh, I can't believe I said that. So she it's a very broad range. So our, our family reading aloud time it's often books that, like you said, I would never give my seven-year-old or my four-year-old to read. Um, and, and they kind of fade in and out sometimes too with the attention. Um, like we're reading the, uh, the Fellowship of the Ring right now. And my son kind of, he's only eight. So he goes in and out, he waits for the battle scenes and then he really <laughs> tunes in, you know. <laughs> but um, but it, it astonishes me every time what they do pick up just hearing it aloud in the context of the home, or like you said, audiobooks are a great resource. There's a wonderful online resource called LibriVox, L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X, I'll link it below. But many classics, many children's classics are available online, read aloud, um, and they're free. It's a free resource because they're all in the public domain. They're old enough to be um, not protected by copyright. So that's, it's a wonderful resource to check out as a parent to start to mm -hmm. fight the presentism in your family yeah. listening. And I think um, the other thing we found fairly recently is that the, our older um, daughter reading to the younger one also, yeah. they, they both love it. Yeah. And I think there's that sense in which, you know, absolutely reading, you know, reading bedtime stories and reading stories, you know, parents to children is, is wonderful. But sometimes mm -hmm. that, um, the, the children themselves reading can be can be wonderful yeah yeah it's a really special sibling moment too yeah, yeah. yeah and i think there are there are some great 
current books as well but sometimes you just have to to search hard for them and um and and they don't necessarily take the format you might expect as well so i i, mm. I quite like graphic novels and i mm. again this is not something i'd particularly grown up with or that was encouraged during my teacher training or anything like that but there are some there are some great books i'm thinking of um jean-francois kiefer who's a, a french mm. deacon and he's mm. written a book called the adventures of lupio um oh, which wow. are all based on uh, the life of saint francis hmm. um, they, they tell great stories and they're, they're these, visually yeah. attractive so for younger children they're, they're wonderful mm -hmm. um, and then yeah, that's good ben, to... ben Hackey, who's, who's who's um working at the moment in the states and went to christendom college and, mm. and write uh, z to the P space girl for example so it's you know it's androids and it's robots and it and it's space missions and it's adventure it's deeply it's deeply catholic as well without religion ever being explicitly mentioned right so there are, there are some robots really can be sacramental right <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful it's brilliant yeah yeah and it's good to know that there is good material coming out um still as well and we can have this from from way back then all the way to today um, there can still be this enrichment in our reading life um so roy did you do you feel like as a child did you have any deficiencies in your own education that you had to overcome or that you've had to read your way through and how did you do that yeah well i think yes lots <laughs> lots of deficiencies we all do um, i mean i i went to a I went to quite an academic school and mm -hmm. I, I then went to Oxford and I, I read history. So in a sense, I should have had a really good background. I should have had a really good broad sweep of history. But actually, the reality was, even with those advantages, there was huge gaps in my historical knowledge. There was very much that sense that if someone hadn't taught it to me, I hadn't necessarily picked it up. Hmm. Uh, I think I'd lost somewhere along the line. I'd lost that kind of natural desire to explore, um, and I think also what I'd, what had happened through my education is that I'd been pushed narrower and narrower and narrower. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, for various reasons, I think I, I, I fought back against that as I as I grew older, and so now I, I quite like you know dipping into all sorts of. I've, subject areas I, I, mean, I don't even like the idea of a subject area to be perfectly honest right because i think we tend it's a part of this fragmentation of truth that we talked about earlier so yeah i think i think i've i've you know read widely and i've mm -hmm. um you know just got to know some really interesting people who've who've helped me to see that there are other ways of doing things i guess yeah you rediscovered your wonder as it were that yeah. children have that natural wonder and we lose it somewhere along the way. And this is this is one of Chesterton's, you know, absolutely central messages. I mean, he's just, the, you know, he's he he encapsulates this so wonderfully. Yes. Uh, the ethics of Elfland and and elsewhere, just that sense, the importance of wonder. And I think it's probably only since becoming a father and seeing things through mm -hmm. my children's eyes that I've really managed to tap back into that again. Yeah, I I do think home education helps parents it helped it's helped me tremendously just 
rediscover that in the intensity of a child's wonder too that you really are captivated that the sun came up again today <laughs> that oh my goodness it's spring again and it's all happening again and um yeah watching my children live through that has helped helped me so much and i i do I, I hope that our society can be more open to children again and become more child friendly. And the education can become more child friendly for the sake of the adults that so that they're not stuck in this perpetual. I think I think we all lose it around adolescence, right? That there's that the anxieties of uh, puberty. Um, and we need to be around young children. They're a gift from God for that reason. So yeah, That's the good. rediscovering. And I think I think going back to your question about about reading and how parents can help their children with reading, I think again one of the things we do is we stop reading children's books because we we look down on them. Yes. But actually, it's been a real pleasure discovering um, all sorts of children's books. So I think we can't necessarily catch up or keep up with everything that's being produced, but we can we can read quite widely in children's fiction. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's quicker for a start reading yes. um, some big um, adult novel. Um, so I think I think that input from us, that's that knowledge from us, is really important. Mm -hmm. um, but we've also obviously got to bring our children to a point where they can start to make good decisions for themselves as well. Yeah, how to discern good reading from because not all reading is is healthy. Uh, how to feed yourself well, right? It's like teaching them to eat well, um, but for the soul. So how, as an author, you were a reader first then, obviously. Um, so what, what books have you read that have most influenced your own fiction writing? Because you, you have two works of fiction now, right? You have The yeah, Race. That's right. What was the first one about the, the Chinese? The first one was um, Between Darkness and Light, which was a literary novel for adults mm -hmm. um, about the First World War, and right. the Chinese contribution to the First World War in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and then The Race is a children's novel. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've been particularly influenced by any one author. I mean, I love all the all the people you'd expect me to love, you know, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and, and so on. Um, <laughs> but... Um, and I, I, I really like some contemporary authors as well, like Frank Cottrell Boyce over here in the, in the UK, who's a, he's a very, very talented writer. He's a very funny writer. Um, he's a home educating Catholic as well. Wow, um, I didn't know that. Oh. Who's, uh, you know, very, very much mainstream, which is, mm -hmm. which is remarkable. Yes, <laughs> it is um, remarkable. It's a miracle. <laughs> so, um, I, I don't know, I've probably sort of dipped into lots of different people, really. I think lots of influences from lots of different places. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about about the race. Who's it written for? What's the central idea? <laughs> yeah, OK. Um, well, it's it's written for anyone over the age of eight. But Excellent. The main names are eight to 12-year-olds. And it's uh, it focuses on Eric Liddell um, of Chariots of Fire fame. Mm. And uh, that's... It was slightly shocking to me to discover this week, actually, that it was 40 years since Chariots of Fire. Wow, um, yeah. Remarkable. So, hmm. and, and what was really interesting about Chariots of Fire was you know, it won various Oscars, very, very successful film, but it had the, a Christian at the centre of it and a Christian, very much a Christian story right. about you know, Eric Little, who, who wouldn't run on a Sunday and therefore 
gave up chance of Olympic gold, it seemed, but came back to win the, the 400 meters at the- A race he hadn't trained for. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I was studying Chinese studies um, a few years back and I came across more information about his life. And there was a whole load about his life I just didn't know. Yeah. For example, that what he did after the Olympics and after the Olympics, rather than um, seeking fame and fortune, uh, he went off and became a missionary in China, mm -hmm. uh, which was the land of his birth. So I thought, well, here's a fascinating story. Yeah. And uh, he ended up being incarcerated in a Japanese prisoner of war camp during World mm -hmm. War II, along with lots of other people, lots of other missionaries, including some rather remarkable Trappist monks. Wow. Um, so part, one mm. aspect of the story that I quite enjoy is, is the moment when, when Eric Liddell, this you know, very devout Protestant and uh, a man called Patrick Scanlon, who is a very devout Trappist monk, um, kind of meet and their interaction, their friendship. Mm. But on the other hand, I wanted to tell a, a contemporary story as well. So set alongside that narrative, there's, a, there's another narrative, which is about a young uh, British Chinese girl who was adopted from China uh, called Lily. Um, and she's also uh, working towards the race of her life. Hmm. Um, and she's got different challenges in, in the modern day. Um, so those, it's just, those two stories sort of intermesh. That's wonderful. I, I want my children to read that. Chariots of Fire was one of my, growing up, it was just one of my favorite films. It was our, one of our family's favorite films. So I'm, I'm so excited to hear about the race. This is great. Roy, do you have any other projects you're working on right now that you want to share with us or just besides um, your sanctity and your sainthood? <laughs> yeah, that's quite a big project to be working on. It's a big one. <laughs> um, well, I've always got various projects on the go. There's one project I'm quite excited about at school, actually, at the moment, which is um, we're designing a new program um, for the, the sixth form, the older students, 17 and 18 year olds. Um, so I, I teach in a Catholic school, mm -hmm. uh, but students come from a range of different backgrounds. So we're, we're creating what we're calling the Sophia program, which is um, trying to put wisdom back at the center. Wow. And it's, uh, it's an addition to the, the subjects they've chosen. But again, it's this attempt to try and to try and broaden their minds, to try and get them to see something about the, the, the whole of reality. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it's a real privilege it's a it's a real responsibility as well to be given yeah. this sort of opportunity mm -hmm. so we'll see how that develops over the next next few years yeah um, so i'm looking wonderful. forward to that yeah that's wonderful and um so so needed yeah it's i'm i love talking to people from all over there are so many movements like that and projects like that to to bring education back to its true dignity and its its true goal um so we'll definitely keep that project in our thoughts and prayers and yes thank you so much roy peachy for thank being you very much us. indeed thank you it's a pleasure